Hi, everyone. This Quorum episode this month will count for CME credit with ACP. Yay. We will link the exact URL in the show notes, so click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, cue the intro. This is Dr. Marty Fried, Dr. Shreya Chiretti, and Dr. Joel Money. This is the Core IM Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today we're discussing heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which we're going to affectionately refer to as HIT for the remainder of the episode. Right. Basically, this is going to be everything an internist ever needed to know about HIT, with a little bit of extra sprinkles on heparin ahas and thrombocytopenia goodness. Nice. If you look back in the literature a couple decades ago, so before you and I were in practice, the concern was raising awareness about HIT. The concern was missing cases of HIT. And while that still happens occasionally, I think that um, we were so zealous with our educational educational campaign that we sort of pushed the pendulum maybe a little bit too far. And so now I think a much more common problem than missing it is over-suspecting, over-diagnosing, and over-treating it, which can lead to harm in and of itself. That's Dr. Adam Sucker, a hematologist and director of the Penn Comprehensive Hemophilia and Thrombosis Program. You'll also hear from Dr. Lori Lincoln, a thrombosis consultant at McMaster University doing the recap. Both were authors of the 2018 American Society of Hematology Guideline on Diagnosis and Management of HIT. And to help us with this, we have another new Core IM friend of the pod joining us. This is Dr. Joel Money, an internal medicine resident from the University of Utah. Go Utes! Go Utes! <laughs> I learned so much sports from this. <laughs> <laughs> so much sports. So glad to be here with you guys. To get us in the mood for this recording, I may have listened to Hit Me Baby one more time and Hit Me With Your Best Shot on oh, repeat. God. No judgments, guys. Nice. Or how about that uh, lesser known classic? I want hit that way. <laughs> Just <Tell> beautiful. Me why. <laughs> <laughs> Such a that classic. Was great. All right, guys, let's rein it in. Let's get started with the questions we're going to be covering. Remember to test yourself after each of the five pearls. The more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, pathophys and incidence of HIT. Why should we care about HIT? And which patients are at the highest risk of developing HIT? Pearl two, the 4T score. When should we suspect HIT? And what's your approach to working up thrombocytopenia? Pearl 3, testing for HIT. What are the different laboratory tests used for diagnosis of HIT, and how good are they? Pearl 4, treating HIT. What are the treatment options once a diagnosis of HIT is suspected, and how long do you need to treat for? And Pearl 5, our throwback pearl, coronary artery calcium score. When should we be using the coronary artery calcium score? And what do we do with the results of the score? So let's get started with the case to set the stage. You're taking care of a middle-aged man with HIV and end-stage renal disease who's on dialysis and unfortunately is in the hospital with sepsis from pneumonia. He's on multiple antibiotics and his antiretrovirals for the HIV. On hospital day 7, his platelet count drops from about 170,000 to 50,000. You bring this up on rounds and you start talking about the differential diagnosis and you're doing everything you can to avoid saying hit because you just really do not want to go down that rabbit hole. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of like, can't we just say his thrombocytopenia is due to recent sepsis or multiple antibiotics and move on? I mean, the way I look at it, we have 19 other patients to round on before noon. The med students haven't even started their presentations yet. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. But here's the sticky point. Diagnosing HIT or misdiagnosing HIT can be devastating. Left untreated, uh, HIT is associated with about a 6% daily risk of thrombosis, amputation, and death. And that is a really high risk when you think about it. I challenge you to come up with any other thrombophilic condition, inherited or acquired, that comes close to HIT in terms of how profoundly hypercoagulable it is. Hey, um, Joel, what was that sound? Ooh, I think it was the sound of a mic being dropped somewhere. Oh, snap! (laughs) (laughs) And to reiterate, that is a 6% daily risk. I had no idea that was the case before going down this rabbit hole. Right, so now that everyone's ears are parked, we should step back a little bit and explain what actually is HIT. I feel a little pathophys nugget coming. That's right, you do. Generally put, HIT can be defined as an antibody-mediated activation of platelets with heparin exposure that leads to thrombocytopenia and, in some cases, venous or arterial thrombosis. Yep, and we'll link an infographic in the show notes and our social media. But in essence, what's happening in HIT is a formation of a complex of three things. First, you got heparin, a negatively charged polysaccharide, which gets attracted to platelet factor 4, conveniently a positively charged protein stored in platelet granules, and then last but not least, on top of that complex of heparin and platelet factor 4 is an antibody, usually IgG. We call them HIT antibodies. Okay, time out. Why are these complexes important and what exactly do they do? They do what we all learned about in medical school and then promptly forgot after step one. They activate platelets. When a platelet becomes activated, it changes shape. It sort of goes from being kind of like a nice round shape to having almost like pseudopodia. Um, and um, it releases the contents of uh, certain granules into the circulation. And these granules contain a number of different molecules, but some of these molecules have the job of recruiting more platelets, um, causing platelets to aggregate and, again, um, to become activated and secrete more of these molecules. And so you sort of have this positive feedback loop as more and more platelets can become activated and incorporated into a potentially a thrombus. So it sounds like the thrombocytopenia is coming from both consumption of platelets at the site of thrombosis and from being activated as well as being removed by our good old friend the spleen after being coated with antibody. I'm pretty sure that's about the only thing a spleen is actually good for. Oh, poor spleen. But yeah, so it sounds like when a patient gets exposed to any type of heparin in their blood, it can bind to platelet factor 4, and in some people, cause an immune response in which antibodies are formed against this complex. And that's going to cause platelet activation, aka platelets are going to get angry. And this usually takes about 5 to 10 days because it takes time for those plasma cells to make the antibodies and get them into circulation. 5 to 10 days unless, of course, they happen to have rapid onset hit. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rapid onset? (laughs) Shreya, you said this was easy. This sounds like it's getting more complicated. Right, right. It turns out it does. So rapid onset hit is when platelets count precipitously drops right after exposure of heparin. And this really is going to happen in patients that have prior exposure to heparin. So usually 
they've been exposed to it within the last 30 or 100 days. Here, we'll let Dr. Sucre explain. So most cases of HIT um, uh, occur in patients who do not have pre-existing HIT antibodies. You know, they may or may not have received heparin in the past, but they've, they've never had sort of an immunizing exposure to heparin. They don't have pre-existing HIT antibodies. We put them on heparin, and if they're going to develop a HIT, it takes some time for those IgG antibodies to form, and specifically that, that time is about 5 to 10 days. And so you see the platelet count begin to fall by 5 to 10 days after initiation of heparin. So the, that's what we call sort of typical onset HIT. But the exception is that now imagine a patient who had heparin within the very recent past, let's say um, at a hospitalization two weeks ago. And that heparin caused the patient to form HIT antibodies. Um, but by the time those HIT antibodies formed, they were no longer on heparin. And so the HIT antibodies didn't cause any trouble because there were no platelet factor four heparin complexes around for the antibodies to bind to, uh, leading to activation of platelets and thrombosis. And so the patient made antibodies. Nobody knew about it. Now they get readmitted to the hospital and they are given heparin again. But now the antibodies are already in circulation. And so when they get heparin, it forms these multi-molecular complexes with platelet factor 4, and the antibodies are there to bind to those complexes uh, and leading to uh, platelet activation uh, and and the potential risk for thrombosis. Oh, man, and that rapid onset hit happens rapidly. Like, we're talking within 24 hours. Okay, so whether it's the rapid onset hit or this classic 5 to 10 day hit, Either one bring about a 1 in 20 daily risk of thrombosis, amputation, or death, which is crazy. But remember, HIT is rare. HIT is uncommon, um, but very commonly suspected. As a hematologist, I can tell you that the most common consult we get in the hospital is um, for suspected HIT. Most of those cases turn out not to be true HIT. Um, but people are certainly thinking about it, which is good. I'm sure thinking about it. But it looks like the overall incidence ranges from anywhere to less than 1% to 5%. So I'm curious about that higher end of the spectrum. Which patients are at higher risk for HIT? There seems to be a difference between medical and surgical patients, with surgical patients being at a higher risk for HIT. Hmm. And then what about the type of heparin used? I remember chart reviewing and getting a phone call. I think he was on sub-Q heparin for DVT prophylaxis because I think he was refusing it. Does it matter? That's often how I figure out what anticoagulation, (laughs) (laughs) prophylactic anticoagulation my patients are on, which ones they're refusing Refusing, every day. Oh, that's so unfortunate. Listen, we often forget that people who are on dialysis are exposed to heparin too. Remember that it's used to keep those juices going within the dialysis circuit. That's right. And as you're pointing out, the type of heparin definitely makes a difference. Unfractionated heparin poses a higher risk than low molecular weight heparin does. There's a really nice Cochrane systematic review from 2017 that looked at about 1,400 post-op patients that got either unfractionated heparin or a low molecular weight heparin. And they found that about an 80% lower risk of hit with low molecular weight heparin compared to the unfractionated heparin. Oh, wow. That difference is no joke. Oh, I love me another reason to put patients on low molecular weight heparin. It's a once a day injection, not twice a day or three times a day like sub-Q heparin, and it's less costly. 
But do we know why unfractionated heparin has such a higher risk for HIT? The pathogenic complexes and form most readily um, with larger strands of heparin, as we as are found in unfractionated heparin. They, um, as as the pieces of heparin get smaller, you're less and less likely to form these large multimolecular pathogenic complexes. So we see it less frequently with, for example, low molecular weight heparin. And then it's it is vanishingly rare um, it, with fondaparinox, which is just the sort of the five sugars, the pentasaccharide um, the part of heparin. Fascinating. Now that I understand the pathophysiology, it kind of makes sense. Unfractionated heparin is a bigger strand, so there's more room for those pathogenic complexes to form. Low molecular weight heparin is a s- smaller, so less room for those mischievous complexes. Yes. Love it. <laughs> I am chalking this one up in the wind column. All right. We got to wrap up this first pearl. HIT is an antibody-mediated activation of platelets. It begins with this formation of the PF4 heparin antibody complex that then triggers this platelet activation cascade and the formation of more complex. It's a relatively rare diagnosis, but it has significant morbidity and mortality associated with it. Remember, we're talking a 6% risk of thrombosis, amputation, or death per day. But the risk isn't uniform across patients. Medical patients getting low molecular weight heparin are at the lowest risk, while surgical patients receiving unfractionated heparin are at the highest risk, which tops out at about 5%. So back to our patient whose platelets are dropping. Remember we said he's at about 50,000 right now, and he was at about 170,000 a week ago. He's a non-surgical patient on the medicine floors, and he's getting unfractionated heparin, and that puts him in the middle of that 1% to 5% range that we just talked about. If only there were an objective way to measure his risk beyond our basic gestalt. Right, if only. (laughs) Right, so there is that validated scoring system, the 4T score that everyone learns about in medical school. It's got that four components that mostly start with a T to help us consider, is this patient with thrombocytopenia in the hospital really have hit? And listen, there is no need to memorize all the different like scoring for this the 4T score. Just know about kind of the, in general what the 4Ts refer to. There's the degree of thrombocytopenia, that's number one. Second is timing of platelet count fall. Third is the presence of a thrombosis, that's the third T. And the fourth is this other possible causes for thrombocytopenia. Yeah, you know, the trickiest part of the scoring system for me is that last part, which tries to quantify how likely those other diagnoses in our differential are. You know, a lot of our patients have a bunch of reasons why their platelets are dropping, kind of like in our patient. And the reason why it's so important to tease this out, remember, is that HIT has one key clinical difference that separates it from other causes of thrombocytopenia, and that is the risk of thrombosis. Most of those other thrombocytopenic disorders are actually associated not with an increased risk of thrombosis, but primarily with an increased bleeding risk. And if you were to treat those patients as though they had hit, you would be subjecting them to the potential bleeding risk of the, the anticoagulants that we use to treat hit without any benefit. So if it's thrombocytopenia and clotting, it's more likely to be hit. But if it's thrombocytopenia and no clotting, it's open season. Is it the Venkison? Is it substance-induced thrombocytopenia? Is it the post-viral thrombocytopenia? So many questions. So many questions. So first, it's probably a good idea to make sure that the thrombocytopenia is real, and we're not just dealing with clumped platelets. So take a look at the smear, or think about sending in a blue top tube. But if we're pretty sure that this is real, it's 
great to have a systematic way to think about thrombocytopenia in those hospitalized patients. We're going to give a huge shout out to the great Dr. Andre Mansour's recent book, Frameworks for Internal Medicine. In it, he proposes two big buckets of thrombocytopenia, which includes decreased platelet production on one hand and increased destruction of platelets on the other hand. Listeners, take a pause here and think about what causes decreased production of platelets. Hey, Shreya, can you be my guinea pig with the decreased production? Sure, you got it. So basically, production of platelets is dependent on two organs, the liver and the bone marrow. So first, I ask myself, is there liver disease, right? Because liver is going to make thrombopoietin, aka TPO. And so if there's liver disease, there's less thrombopoietin to help make those platelets, similar to kind of how EPO helps make red blood cells. And then the second, third, and fourth buckets are bone marrow stuff. So is there bone marrow hypoplasia from meds, infections, toxins? Third, is there ineffective erythropoiesis? So is there megaloblastic anemia, myelodysplastic syndrome that's kind of shoving out the platelets from the bone marrow? And lastly, is there some kind of infiltration of that bone marrow? Is there cancer, myelofibrosis, my favorite diagnosis, amyloid? (laughs) Yes, five stars. What about the increased destruction of platelets though? So here I'm thinking about, is the spleen really big? Hypersplenism is going to hide some of those platelets. Is there some immune-mediated process, immune thrombocytopenic purpura, or some less common things like DIC? There's those super rare things like thrombocytopenic microangiopathies that I haven't thought about in a long time, TTP, HUS. And last but not least, HIT obviously falls under the destruction of platelet bucket, right? One of the most important things when you're thinking about alternative causes is thinking about the drugs we're giving this person. Exactly. Mechanistically, right, this can happen in a few different ways. Some drugs cause thrombocytopenia through bone marrow suppression. And here a classic example would be like chemotherapy. Um, and, And most of those drugs do not cause isolated thrombocytopenia. They cause a reduction in all blood cell counts. Um, the kind of drug-induced thrombocytopenia that I think is most often mistaken for it is drug-induced immune thrombocytopenia, where the patient makes antibodies that attack and clear their platelets in the presence of a, a particular drug. And there are so many drugs that have uh, been accused of causing this particular condition. There happens to be a pretty good database of drugs that cause drug-induced thrombocytopenia, We'll throw that link in the show notes for you guys to reference later. Here, the most important piece of the puzzle is a time course of the drop in platelets. Dr. Sucre describes one of the most common mistakes he sees internists make when they're reviewing the time course of the platelet drop. One of the common mistakes that I see um, is that when when somebody thinks that a a drug might be to blame for a, a fall in platelet count, they say, okay, well, the patient's platelet count started to fall on Tuesday. So what drugs were started on Monday? But that's actually not the time to be looking. It was a week ago Monday or two weeks ago Monday. Those drugs that were started a week to two weeks before the platelet began to fall, those are the ones that should be suspected. Oh, bummer. It is so much easier just to scroll through the administered meds for like one to two days. But really, we need to scroll back about one to two weeks for the drug-induced thrombocytopenia. Yep. There are other things that the patient's been exposed to other than heparin. And you know what? Honestly, guys, when I we were producing this episode, I really wanted to give strong clinical pivot points for us when we're thinking about alternative causes of thrombocytopenia. I was really hoping for them. And I really pushed the hematologists we were interviewing, but both of them 
actually very honestly and openly talked about how even they struggle with the differences of different causes of thrombocytopenia. Unfortunately, I don't think it's that straightforward. We struggle with this all the time. And, and it's one of the downsides of the force he score that makes it so challenging. When I um, did the study here in Hamilton, um, looking at the 4T score, we actually gave a list of potential alternative diagnoses. So rather than leaving it open, we actually gave residents and clinicians a list of the most likely things that it could be, but none of those things could be differentiated strictly on, strictly on one particular pivotal point. Not going to lie. That's a little bit comforting. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but listen, let's, let's review Pearl 2. When considering the diagnosis of HIT, we use the 4T score. That is the degree of thrombocytopenia, the timing of thrombocytopenia, the presence of thrombosis, and similar to the Wells criteria, that last question asks about alternative explanations to the thrombocytopenia. For that, we give a big shout out to Dr. Mansour's frameworks, decreased production bucket, and increased destruction bucket. And review medications that were started one to two weeks before development of thrombocytopenia, not just one to two days. Nice recap, Fried. All right, let's calculate a 4T score for our patient. He gets two points for the degree of thrombocytopenia, two points for the timing, zero points for thrombosis because he does not have a thrombosis yet, and let's say one point for other causes of thrombocytopenia. That gives us a total score of five or intermediate risk. And what do we do with this information now? Sounds like a great time to move on to Pearl 3. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. All right, guys, I know that if we miss this diagnosis, it's kind of a big deal, but we still have like 19 other patients to round on this morning, and I'm just ready to move on. We're going to calculate our intermediate risk 4T score, and then we're going to console him, and they'll help us figure this out. Done, right? And now, now, we can figure this out. Let's talk about what kind of testing we can use to figure out if our patient actually has HIT. So there are two main types of laboratory testing for HIT. One test is used to detect the presence of antibodies, and the other test is used to see if the antibodies are functionally active or activating platelets. Nice. Let's start with that first test to actually detect the antibodies. The anti-PF4 antibody test is an ELISA-based assay that detects circulating antibody that binds to platelet factor 4. Right, and if PF4 is the protein that's stored in platelets and released during platelet activation. It turns out that that anti-PF4 antibody test is extremely sensitive, but not very specific. The sensitivity is usually cited around 98 to 100%, and the specificity is usually in the 30 to 40% range. Right, so PF4 antibody is great to rule out HIT. But if it's positive, it doesn't necessarily mean they have HIT. 
Actually, even one study saw that 8 to 17% of people who received some kind of heparin product for seven days had a positive hit antibody without actually having clinical hit. They didn't have thrombocytopenia, they didn't have low platelets, and they didn't form any clots or thrombosis. That is super interesting. Would, would a good analogy to this be kind of like a D-dimer? Exactly. The D-dimer is a very sensitive test to rule out venous thromboembolism in patients that are low or moderate risk. The same thing is true with the anti-PF4 antibody. A negative test is reassuring that this patient does not have HIT. There's an important caveat with the anti-PF4 antibody specificity, something I didn't know about before researching this. But essentially, when you get a lab test back, there's actually gradations of positivity. You can kind of think of this like a titer for antibodies. It's referred to as the optical density, OD. And so the standard cutoff for positivity of the optical density or OD is generally around 0.6. So less than 0.6 is negative. And then if it's greater than 0.6, that's usually positive in most labs. The reason why we even care about this in the first place is because while there is a confirmatory test that we'll get into, if the optical density is super high, like greater than 2.0, the likelihood of hit goes way up, which will make us much more compelled to treat as if it's actually hit. But like a D-dimer, most are going to be frustratingly positive below. And so the main thing here is we're going to try to figure out if these antibodies that were detected are actually causing platelet activation. And that's the job of that confirmatory serotonin release assay. So we, we collect platelets from donors, and we radio label their platelets uh, with, with C14. And the C14 gets incorporated into uh, serotonin, which is stored in the dense granules of platelets. And it turns out that when platelets become activated, they release the contents of their dense granules into the circulation, and we can um, measure the release of this radioactive serotonin. Ah, makes so much sense now why it's called a serotonin release assay. More like platelets are being activated and something's making them angry assay, right? (laughs) So (laughs) angry. But why do we even need to send this screening PF4 antibody if there's this confirmatory test anyway? It sounds like this SRA is a nice and easy, straightforward test to perform, right? It requires fresh donor platelets and radioactivity every time you do the test. And for most clinical laboratories, those are not feasible reagents. And so, therefore, tests like the serotonin release assay is really only offered at select reference laboratories around the world. And most of us, when we want to order an SRA, we have to send it out to a reference lab, and we get the result back, you know, in a week. Oh, snap. Never mind. I guess we're stuck (laughs) waiting a week for that SRA result to come back. The SRA is much more specific test, and for our purposes, a positive result confirms the diagnosis of HIT. Right. So let's put it all together. We've got this 4T score. We've got this anti-PF4 antibody, the serotonin release assay. In what order should we be thinking about these scores and tests, and how should we be interpreting the results? There's a great chart from Dr. Sucre's article that we'll put in the show notes to follow along. First, calculate a 4T score. If it's low, we're thinking like a risk score of 0 to 3. Stop. It's not hit. Pick up a copy of Mansour's book and start considering (laughs) other diagnoses. If it's intermediate risk, so a score of four to five, then we at least need to consider hit. There's one study that found the incidence of hit with an intermediate score to be around 14%. At this point, we're going to send an anti-PF4 antibody, and if the optical density is less than 0.6, stop. It is not hit, and we're going to consider other diagnoses. 
If the optical density is between 0.6 and 2.0, we're waiting for the SRA result to come back and we're stopping heparin. We're going to get into the treatment options in just a little bit. Right. And if the 4T score is high risk, a score of 6 to 8, then that incidence of HIT is much higher, around 65%. And here we're going to send the anti-PF4 antibody and the serotonin release assay. If the antibodies come back negative, you're not dealing with HIT. Stop that alternative anticoagulation we're going to talk about in a second. Love it. All right. Quick summary of Pearl 3. There are two tests for HIT. First, we have the highly sensitive anti-PF4 antibody. Second is the highly specific platelets are being activated and something is making them angry assay, also known as the serotonin release assay. In general, the algorithm should go 4T, followed by anti-PF4 antibody test, followed by the serotonin release assay. But in reality, we all acknowledge that often we send both of those tests at the same time, since you're going to get the anti-PF4 antibody first, and then the serotonin release assay a few days later. So back to our intermediate risk patient. We send off the anti-PF4 antibody and it comes back positive. Surprise, surprise on a HIT podcast. (laughs) The OD, the optical density score, is 1.0. So since it's less than 2.0, we're going to be waiting for that serotonin release assay to come back. And while we're waiting for that confirmatory test, what do we do in the meantime? So we think our patient might have HIT. And now we have officially gone down that rabbit hole and we cannot come back out until the SRA comes back. (laughs) Right. So the obvious first step is to stop heparin. But do we really need to start him on a different anticoagulant? Can we just get away with stopping the sub-Q heparin he's on? So part of me wants to say yes, but I have Dr. Sucre's stat rattling around that every day you delay initiation of therapy, which means stopping heparin and starting an alternative anticoagulant, you expose the patient to a 6% daily risk of thrombosis, amputation, and death. Ah, yeah, that's right. A 6% daily risk of thrombosis. So I guess the message here is if you're going to send the diagnostic testing for HIT, we should really be treating as if our patients do have HIT. Yeah, that's right. And in thinking about which actual alternative anticoagulant to choose, it turns out that there's a lot more than just the Argatraban that you might have heard about. Really? Okay, so I don't have to feel guilty about putting my patients on Q6-hour PTTs for our Gatraban? Best news ever. All right, in terms <laughs> of alternative anticoagulants, there are four main options. Argatraban, Fondaparinu, Bivalrudin, and the direct oral anticoagulants, aka the DOACs. Argatraban and Bivalrudin are infusions. Fondaparinu is a once-daily sub-Q injection, and when we talk about DOACs, we're really talking about rivaroxaban for really no other reason than it's just the best one out there that's been studied in this situation. There are some nuances to the dosing intensity if your patient has a particularly high bleeding risk. So check out Dr. Sucre's HIT guidelines that we'll link to in the show notes if that's something that really interests you. And the type of anticoagulant you're going to choose is going to depend on a couple different factors. Here, we're going to let Dr. Sucre explain. For example, if I had a patient who um, uh, was, I judged to be at greatly increased bleeding risk or um, was at high risk of needing sort of urgent unplanned procedures that would require stopping anticoagulation. Um, If I had a patient with multi-organ dysfunction and critical illness, those are the sorts of patients where I want to use a short-acting drug like Argatraban or Bivalirudin that can be quickly turned off. If specifically among those group of patients, if if the patient has liver dysfunction, I might prefer bivalirudin because argatraban is metabolized in the liver. On the other hand, if I have patients who have 
good organ function, they're clinically stable, maybe they're even looking like they're ready or getting close to being ready for discharge. Those are patients that I would preferentially treat with either Fondaparinox or a DOAC. Um, and they can even just go home on the drug. So it really facilitates uh, transition to the outpatient setting. Nice. So for the acute treatment of it, we're going to go with our Gatroban or Bivalirudin, especially if there is a high risk or upcoming procedure that the patient's going to go for. But if the patient's stable, it's going to be more Fondaparinox. Marty, I pronounce it Fondaparinox or the direct anticoagulation for a stable patient, particularly your rivaroxaban. Unless your local pharmacist tells you there's, there's been some new studies that have come out. Yeah, seriously. By the time this airs, there's probably going to be some sort of new randomized trial that says a pixaban is good or something. Yep. Um, so can we just talk about warfarin for a second? I mean, listen, I love getting people off the coom, but many of our patients just can't afford DOACs, and we're stuck chasing INRs. The coom, really? <laughs> <laughs> With warfarin, though, you need to be really careful with the initiation. The 2018 ASH guidelines strongly recommend against starting warfarin until the platelet count recovers to above 150,000. It is really important not to use warfarin in these patients, and that is because patients with it really need their protein C uh, to prevent thrombosis. And um, there have been terrible cases of patients with HIT um, being treated with warfarin and developing absolutely devastating uh, thrombosis. It's, it's uh, something called uh, uh, limb gangrene, um, and it's very similar to um, the warfarin-induced skin necrosis that you, you, you may have learned about. So um, it is an absolute contraindication to use warfarin in somebody with acute HIT. And in fact, if you... Um, should ever be taking care of a patient with acute hit who, who maybe who already was started on warfarin before the hit was diagnosed, you stop the warfarin and you give the patient vitamin K so that they can get their, their protein C back as fast as possible. All right. Heard loud and clear. No warfarin if there's any suspicion of hit. And if warfarin just happened to be given, pump them up with vitamin K. All right. So let's get back to our patient. His sepsis is pretty mild. His pneumonia has been improving. And he's not planning on having any major procedures coming up. So I assume that kind of qualifies him for either a DOAC or Fondaparinu kind of guy? Fondaparinox. So let's say we go with rivaroxaban for our patient and the SRA comes back positive. How long do we need to treat him for? This is going to depend on if the patient has hit that's complicated by thrombosis or just isolated hit. If they have hit and a clot in an artery or a vein... You can think about it kind of like a provoked clot, similar to a provoked DVT, and treat it for about three months. Nice. I love the analogies. Um, but what if the Dopplers come back negative and there are no clots? How long do we treat for? So for this category, there's not a real consensus, but treating at least until their platelet count recovers is what most hematologists recommend. Sometimes this is around four to six weeks, but there's not a solid recommendation about it. Great. So we discharge him on rivaroxaban with a close hematology follow-up to recheck those platelets. What should we be educating our patient on discharge? Should we tell him he should never, ever take or get heparin again? I mean, for the most part, heparin should be avoided, but it isn't absolutely contraindicated. These are the situations where you will want to involve your friendly neighborhood hematologist to help you out if you're in a bind. 
Yeah, this part was really surprising to me. For example, some patients that are getting cardiac or vascular surgery have really not many other options than heparin for intraoperative anticoagulation. There was a small study from 2014 that looked at 20 patients that had a remote history of confirmed HIT that ended up getting heparin as a part of their surgery intraoperatively. And only one out of those 20 people actually developed clinical HIT after exposure, and 19 didn't. I might take those odds. I mean, I hope I don't have to take those odds, but if I had to take them, I'd take them. (laughs) I hope you don't have to. But either way, this is probably getting out of the general internalist wheelhouse and will probably involve our hematologist perisurgery. No doubt. All right. Let's recap Pearl 4 treatment of HIT. In general, if you're concerned enough to be sending the PF4 antibody, you should be considering treatment. And treatment is at least discontinuing heparin, but also starting a non-heparin anticoagulant. Choices here are argatroban and bivalrudin if you need something quick on, quick off, or if the patient is stable and kind of ready for discharge, find a Paranux Thank you. or Rivaroxabase. Remember to avoid argatroban and liver dysfunction and avoid warfarin in pretty much all HIT patients until their platelet counts have recovered to 150,000. Remember that inhibition of protein C by warfarin can cause some badness in patients with HIT. Yep. And the treatment duration really depends on if there's a thrombosis or not. If so, treat like there's a provoked clot. If there isn't thrombosis, then just treat until the platelets recover. And finally, those with a history of HIT should probably avoid heparin in the future. And we'll leave you with a pretty compelling story that Dr. Sucre had to share about how HIT gets charted and it can really impact the patient long-term. And so one of the things that I try to impress upon my fellows is that Every bit as important as being able to recognize HIT is being able to recognize not HIT. And I'll give you one example. And so this was um, a woman with Marfan syndrome who uh, had uh, a history of uh, aortic valve replacement, and she was on warfarin. And she was admitted to the hospital for uh, diarrhea, Um, that had been going on for the last several weeks, and she needed a colonoscopy. And so they admitted her to the hospital um, for a workup. Her warfarin was stopped, and she was bridged with unfractionated heparin for the procedure. And it turns out that um, this woman had fluctuating low platelet counts due to something called pseudothrombocytopenia, which is platelet clumping in in lavender top tubes, um, a totally non-pathologic condition. But um, it was mistaken for true thrombocytopenia by the team. Um, and so they were concerned about the possibility of HIT. And so they stopped heparin. They put her on our gatroban. They ordered HIT laboratory testing, and lo and behold, her HIT ELISA came back weekly positive, and the team interpreted that as definitive evidence that she had HIT, and so she ended up staying in the hospital while she was being bridged back from Argatroban to Warfarin, but as if sort of getting the diagnosis wrong wasn't bad enough. Um, she had heparin added to her allergy uh, list in the electronic record. And I call this the scarlet H. It's like once you have that heparin allergy in the chart, you're being branded with a scarlet H, and it's very hard for it to ever go away. And so what I 
discovered in the course of my research is that this woman had eight subsequent admissions to our health system. Each time she was denied heparin because of this erroneous hit or heparin allergy that was uh, listed in her chart. Um, a number of these times she was treated with Argatraban. She had two episodes of major bleeding on Argatraban and spent, you know, collectively numerous extra days and weeks in the hospital because of this mistake. And and so what I would just urge listeners to consider is that, well, diagnosing it promptly, instituting appropriate therapy is really important. It's just as important to get the diagnosis right when the patient doesn't have it, to avoid misdiagnosis, inappropriate therapy, and the, all the adverse downstream consequences that can arise as a result of that. And before we get to the throwback pearl, we'll go to Dr. Lori Lincoln for the recap and her own story with a little bit of a different twist. Okay, so let's start with pearl one, uh, pathophysiology and epidemiology. There are different patient populations, and it does matter in terms of the likelihood of dealing with the case of HIT, depending on the patient population you're looking at. In addition to the surgery population receiving unfractionated heparin, I would also mention two other important high-risk populations. One would be trauma patients who are receiving unfractionated heparin, and the other would be cancer patients who are receiving low molecular weight heparin. Both of those uh, tend to be a higher incidence of HIT as well. Pearl number two, the 14 score. I think the 4T score is a great tool, but like any tool, you have to use it the right way. In other words, you need to have all of the data needed to calculate the score correctly. And sometimes you just don't have it despite your best efforts. I don't know what it's like at your centers, but at my center, sometimes patients are transferred in from another center and we don't have easy access to the medications that they were on prior to coming over. Or sometimes patients have been in and out of hospitals several times over 100 days and it's very unclear as to what they received. And just like Dr. Sucre said, when you're looking for alternative reasons for thrombocytopenia and you're considering drug-induced thrombocytopenia that is not due to heparin, you have to know the exposure dates for those drugs as well. So all of this can make it very complicated. In these cases, you have to take your best shot at calculating the score, but you also have to err on the side of a higher rather than a lower score where there is uncertainty, and you also may want the reassurance of a negative ELISA. Which leads us into pearl number three with respect to HIT testing. Now, HIT testing can certainly be a challenge, and Dr. Sucre has done a good job of describing that. Uh, one thing I will mention, and I loved the reference earlier to D-dimer, because I think that works in beautifully here. So if you add a 4T score and an ELISA together, you have a very powerful tool for diagnosis. Or specifically, you have a very powerful tool for ruling out HIT. And that's usually what we want to do. So just like with a D-dimer and clinical pretest probability, either one of those tests are helpful by themselves, but when you combine them together, you greatly enhance both the specificity and the sensitivity. So the same thing happens in this situation. But you do have to be careful because sometimes you're going to get a disagreement between the results. For example, if you get a positive ELISA, but you have a low 4T score, you have to remember that ELISAs are well known to have a high false positive rate, particularly in certain patient populations. Um, an example of that might be cardiovascular surgery patients. So you cannot just take the ELISA at face value. And that might be a situation where you recognize that you have to do something else. 
So one of the things you may have to do is you're going to stop your heparin. You may decide to start an alternative anticoagulant, but you're going to reassess the situation in a couple of days. And hopefully it will become more clear because your 4T score may change or your ELISA result may change. And that may help you uh, to go in the right direction in terms of managing your patient. Lastly, in terms of treatment of HIT. Now, I totally agree with Dr. Sucre. It is incredibly important to get the diagnosis correct. And there are disaster stories on both sides of the fence. It is a disaster when you overdiagnose HIT because patients are labeled forever as being allergic to heparin when they're not. And Dr. Sucre explained a really terrible experience with a patient in that situation. It's also true that it's a disaster if you miss HIT. So in my case, uh, I had a very humbling experience very, very recently where a patient was admitted to the ICU, developed thrombocytopenia during treatment with lomic-weight heparin uh, for a pulmonary embolism, and all of a sudden platelets dropped on a day five. And so when you calculated the four T score, the first three Ts were all twos, except for once we got to the other part of the score, where you have an alternative suggestion of what could be causing the thrombocytopenia. The patient, had, to me, had a very convincing alternative diagnosis, which is he had confirmed group B strep and he was clearly septic, and he clearly had hypotension because of it. And all of this seemed to give a very compelling reason why I was seeing that thrombocytopenia. For that reason, I actually didn't um, stop his heparin. I continued it and continued to reassess him on a daily basis. Unfortunately, two days later, it became very clear that something wasn't right because he was starting to improve on antibiotics in terms of his blood pressure got better, his white cell count was getting better. Everything was getting better except for his platelets. And so I had to reassess my situation. I sent off testing. The one thing I don't have at my center is the ability to do ELISAs on weekends. And that's when this patient was being evaluated. Started him on Fonda Paranox. And then I got my result back confirmed by the SRA a couple of days later that, in fact, this was a very strongly positive um, hit case. So again, a situation where a so-called hit expert ends up missing the diagnosis, but it was a very complicated situation. And I think it just reaffirms the fact that sometimes you have to keep an open mind. And if patients don't respond the way you expect them to, you have to reconsider your position. So guys, I think we could throw back to our five pearls on coronary artery calcium scores and CT angiography. You talking stress bombs, Joel? You know I'm talking <laughs> stress bombs. Nice. Such great episodes on cardiac stress testing. If you guys haven't already, give those two episodes a listen. And do you guys remember which patient scenarios where coronary artery calcium scoring would be most appropriate? All right. So coronary artery calcium testing should really only be in risk stratifying asymptomatic patients, especially if there's a decision of starting or not starting statins. Can we get that classic clip of Greg's warning? Calcium score has no role in the evaluation of chest pain. I'm going to repeat that. Calcium scoring has no role in the evaluation of chest pain. So keep in mind, there are these few classic situations where CAC scoring is super helpful. So there's that patient who is skeptical about starting a statin despite an ASCVD risk score in the teens, or maybe that middle-aged patient with a risk score of 5.5, kind of low, but a family history of premature coronary artery disease. One of the biggest points I took away from that episode is the power of zero thing. And that's when the CAC score is zero, that statins have not been shown to reduce major adverse cardiac events in that group. Yep. A few things in the internist arsenal to actually reclassify patients down to a lower risk. Oh, I love when that happens. That is PCP gold right there. 
All right, folks, that is a wrap for us. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Take care. We'll see you next time. Excellent. Thank you all for listening. Remember to claim your CME credit on the ACP website. It's easy to do. Again, if you are in training, send this episode to an attending or someone else you think could benefit from this means of continuing medical education. And as always, if you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. It does help people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Let us know what we're doing right, how we can improve. A big thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Allison Pisco, Dr. Jack Ozzy, as well as Dr. Eager Macklin for his additional edits. Our beautiful infographic this episode was done by Dr. Michelle Lowe. Give her a big thank you when you pull it up on rounds. And thank you, as always, to our audio editor, Harit Shah, for always putting up with my perfectionism. Take care, guys. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own health care provider for medical care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.